Tonight, welcome to the future where robots are joining the NYPD. It's happening, but critics question whether the cops should have access to technology that could be used to invade people's privacy. And if you've ever wondered how the city's bridges, roads, and tunnels got their name, you're in luck. We learn more about the heroes and villains behind some of New York's most iconic structures as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Are we in New York City or in a scene from a Star Wars movie? That's a question New Yorkers may soon be asking themselves when they see some of the new robots Mayor Adams and the NYPD have been rolling out. In a recent event held at Times Square, the mayor announced the return of DigiDog, the controversial security robot, which the city canceled back in 2021 after serious backlash from a number of civil rights groups. DigiDog and other new policing-related technologies have become the latest tension point in the fight over police spending and public safety. State Senator Jabari Brisport is one of the city's elected officials who's been arguing against the NYPD's use of robots for surveillance and crime prevention, and he joins us now. Thank you for having me, Raphael. So, uh, Senator, as I said, uh, the mayor has introduced several new pieces of technology that will be used by the NYPD. There is DigiDog, which is or are, because we got two of them, uh, robotic dogs that will be used in high-risk circumstances like bomb threats or hostage situations. There's Star Chase, a GPS tracker that can be shot at a fleeting vehicle or a perpetrator. And there's K5, a robot which will roam around the Times Square subway station, shooting video, taking video footage and otherwise uh, acting as a kind of uh, deterrent to crime. Um, but before we get into the specifics of each of these uh, three technologies, now, you've been pretty critical or a voice uh, admonishing the use of, of, of these technologies for policing purposes. Generally, could you tell us why? Could you summarize, summarize uh, your position for us? Yes, the uh, police, the NYPD, are an overfunded force that abuses the tools and the tech tools that they have already abuses them for surveillance uh, and other means already. And any expansion of tools that they have under their belt, we can assume they will abuse those as well. Okay, so so we'll get into that bigger picture, but let's talk about these three pieces of technologies specifically, uh, one at a time, okay? Um, as I said, um, the inter uh, DigiDog has been here before, uh, it was first used during the uh, de Blasio administration, where it was deployed um, in NYCHA housing, 
to the great dismay of civil rights advocates and others. I believe you were a critic. Uh, what was the problem there? So the problem there that this was a way to engage uh, in surveillance of uh, public housing residents, which did not make them feel safer and also did not make them safer. If you want an investment into NYCHA, the thing they want to make them feel safer, they often say is better lighting infrastructure investments into their community as opposed to robotic surveillance dogs. Okay, um, but you know, that's not how, the, uh, how it's going to be used now. You know, the intention now is, as I mentioned, to, to use it in emergency situations, much like the fire department, who has its own DigiDog, used it recently um, after the collapse of that parking garage in lower Manhattan. In the NYPD's case, the mayor has said it will be used in those emergencies where otherwise the lives of officers may be at risk. Under these circumstances, do you accept it? Uh, I think we should consider this uh, an, an attempt to get ready for uh, wider usage of these robots um, and these, these surveillance techniques. Um, even something as innocuous as a, as a camera, you know, the police have used to do illegal surveillance of Muslims after 9-11. And so I don't think we should take it at, at face value that these will be limited in scope. So do you, you feel like like there's always going to be a slippery slope that if you introduce this kind of technology, inevitably they will veer off in, uh, and, and, and perform other functions, perhaps nefarious or sinister functions that they were not intended to function to, to, to be used for initially. That's your concern. Yeah. You know, we have this uh, propensity, you know, coming from the mayor to engage in what people call techno solutionism that, you know, we will rely on, uh, robots and digital technologies um, to, to solve issues which could be better addressed by more community-based issues or more community-based solutions. Okay, now let's move on to Star Chase, which really does sound like something out of Star Wars. Um, <laughs> as I said, this is a new type of GPS, uh, a GPS tracker that can be shot at a fleeing vehicle, either through a handheld or a vehicle-mounted launcher. That'd be a sight. And the expectation is that it will significantly reduce speed chases, which as you know, in the past have often caused civilian fatalities. What is the problem with that? The NYPD is well known to engage in surveillance of people who have not been convicted of a crime, um, who are not necessarily engaging in anything illegal, um, and they profile people. And what is to stop them from surveilling cars uh, for the simple fact that they are profiling the driver? Um, so, so you fear that that the that the NYPD will shoot this GPS and uh, innocent bystanders or innocent civilians' cars. Um, so, I, I'm guessing I can I can guess what your response will be to to K five that 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 robot that uh, people say looks like R two D two and will roam. Um, mm -hmm. Times Square subway station taking uh, video footage, but you know it it doesn't have um, facial facial recognition capabilities. Does that make a difference? I think the biggest issue with um, you know engaging in greater police budget it, it's similar to you know 
putting more police uh, agents into the subways when the actual need of investment is uh, faster service, um, reopening the public bathrooms and reducing the fares and eventually making them them free. It is a misplaced use of funds to um, deeply more empower the NYPD that doesn't address the root um, cause of, uh, or root needs in, in our communities. Uh, but the funds are, are, are going to be, the, the funds paying for this um, are going to be, you know, the assets, you know, the funds from the assets of of of, of convicted criminals. That are, are aren't those funds already dedicated for for this kind of purposes, or at least for policing purposes? You know, I I, I would say that with this NYPD budget, um, this is a real opportunity for people to see what they actually do with their overfunded budget, that they engage in, in tech toys to fight for deeper surveillance of people who, and we're talking about innocent people here who are now being recorded and surveilled by the NYPD, um, and who knows what they will do with that information. You know, that for small children, they have they have used these, these game trucks to, um, you know, collect DNA from, from children. And so I think people should be wary, we should be wary of any increases of the NYPD to engage in deeper surveillance of innocent civilians. All right, but you know, uh, Times Square subway station is a public space and it already has a lot of cameras recording. You know, some of the, some of the people would argue, these are just more cameras. What's the difference between the cameras that already exist at the Times Square and, and these cameras as far as collecting information? It's, a, it's an expansion that is unnecessary. You know, it hasn't been made clear what exactly these add on um, to, to what we already have. And it hasn't been made clear how exactly these would make people safer. All right, so you've touched on, the, on it a number of times in the course of our brief conversation so far. But I wonder if you could be explicit in telling us where you think the money should go to the NYPD or for uh, or, or, or to for policing that that is going to this stuff instead? Well, I, I think the, the 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 general NYPD budget should be decreased um, so that we can allocate that money more deeply into things that make us safer, like education, uh, affordable housing, mental health services, um, and and the like, such as that. Now, earlier this year, you um, you introduced a bill in Albany to deal specifically with the issues that we're talking about. Now, not these specific technologies, but uh, the robot the used by the NYPD for or or the police around the state, right? If I'm not mistaken, uh, for yes. policing purposes. Um, what did that? What does that entail? That legislation and how would it affect the things that we've been talking about here? So the legislation would ban police departments from using any robots that are armed, that can be armed, or that engage in surveillance. And uh, we introduced it shortly after the first DigiDog started patrolling in NYCHA developments uh, a couple of years ago. And we have reintroduced it and are promoting it now in the wake of the new uh, announcement from the mayor and the NYPD. How is it doing in Albany? Are you getting a lot of people to sign off on it? Or do you expect that that it will pass and that it will be become a law? You know, we've got we've seen gotten a lot of interest in, in the bill and uh, expect to pass it before the end of the, the legislative session. So um, 
in 2020, uh, the city council passed the Police Oversight Surveillance Technology or POST Act uh, to ensure transparency in police use of technology. Um, where is that lacking? Why is that not sufficient to deal with the issues that we're talking about? Uh, I think the passage of that bill was absolutely critical to knowing what surveillance the NYPD is currently engaging in. And now that we know, we can work to stop surveillance of our communities. So, you know, um, in the in the minute, that minute and a half that we have, what are some of the critical steps that you believe we should take, the city government should take, uh, Albany uh, should take in order to uh, to to invest in policing and in public safety in the right way? You know, there are many things that come to people's mind when they think of what would make them um, safer. So for one thing, I often hear people just wishing they had better lighting on their block. That's a, just a straight up investment that everyone agrees on. But then also in terms of uh, quality of life, people really wish that we were doing more for the, the homeless, making sure that they had supportive housing, um, that we had more mental health beds uh, and to help you know mental health in, in our communities. Um, people strongly believe in education and also ensuring that more social emotional training is and, and education is, is done in, in our schools and and also jobs, um, you know, cannot fight enough for jobs, especially youth jobs, to ensure that people um, have a livelihood that they can they uh, depend on. All right, Senator. Well, uh, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts with us on on this issue. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much, Rafael. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. If you're a New Yorker, you've likely driven on the major Deegan Expressway or passed through the Holland Tunnel. And if you're a longtime Mets fan, you probably attended a game at Shea Stadium back in the day. But do you know where these New York landmarks got their names? Well, that's the subject of author Rebecca Bratsby's new book, Naming Gotham, the villains, rogues, and heroes behind New York place names. She joins us now. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Rebecca, you know, you're not a historian. You're a professor at CUNY School of Law. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as I can tell, most of your previous work has focused on your specialty, environmental justice. So what moved you to write this book? Well, it's a combination of it is actually related to my specialty because so many of the roads in New York City were placed through uh, black and brown communities, and they are an ongoing environmental justice issue. But really what prompted me to write this book was I used to get stuck on the Major Deegan <laughs> all the time. And I would I'm not very good in traffic, so I would start to complain and whine and I would always wind up saying, who won that Major Deegan anyway? I hate him. <laughs> And finally, my husband just said, well, why don't you find out? So I did. <laughs> and then you wrote about him and a bunch of others. Very interesting yeah. stuff. Now, speaking of that, there are so many pieces of infrastructure, neighborhoods <laughs> and other landmarks named after people. How did you choose the subjects that made it into your book? What was the criteria that you chose? Well, to be honest, it, it's not really historically justifiable or scholarly justifiable at all. It was really who caught my interest. Um, and then I sort of ran out of space. I have a list of <laughs> at least as many other people that I would love to have written about. Well, you've got a lot of people in there and and the, and, and the few, the handful, I'm sorry to say that mm -hmm. we'll have time to talk about today um, 
I, I picked because I think that our, our viewers might might be less knowledgeable of them. And also because I, I found some, you know, interesting, them particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, one thing that stood out for me, first of all, is that your your subtitle uh, accurately points out that villains and rogues made it. They had their names put, you know, put yeah. in, in important landmarks in this uh, in this city. And one of them, perhaps, um, is Henry uh, Bruckner. Who was he? How shady was he? <laughs> why was he known as the Soda Pop King? And why was did his name was his name attached to such an important expressway? So Henry Bruckner was um, the co-founder with his brother of Bruckner Brothers Soda. And during Prohibition, they made a fortune selling soft drinks to New York City. And he was also a politician. He was uh, a Tammany Hall politician. He was elected to Congress uh, multiple times where he rarely showed up for the votes. He then was elected Bronxboro president. And in that role, you really saw his shadiness come out. I mean, first of all, he didn't show up for work very often. And what he did, however, was visit safe deposit boxes a lot. <laughs> he and his son had uh, safe deposit boxes at eight different banks. And over a five-year period, they visited them more than 180 times, and they stored more than $300,000 of, mind you, 1920s dollars in these safe deposit boxes. And so that came out in the big corruption investigation that Samuel Seabury chaired uh, during Mayor Walker's administration. So how did a guy like that get his name put on such an impressive and important expressway? Remember at the beginning, I said he was a Tammany Hall politician. Ah, um, he was an important figure in New York. Um, he was very, very close with the Tammany Hall leaders. He also apparently was very, a very nice guy. People apparently liked him a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even after he got caught up in the corruption scandal, nobody sort of removed him yeah. from office. And then yeah. like a week after he died, they named uh, a road after him. And then when... Um, Robert. Bob Moses expanded it and exactly. became uh, now now really re really quickly. Yep. Is he the only guy in New York City uh, uh, public history to have thousands of children march and protest against him? Well, at least to march and protest about the price of soda. Um, you know, <laughs> we've had youth marches about other things. But... Yeah. Okay, so now let's turn to. Um the uh, individual who started all this, uh, Major <laughs> Deegan. Um, not everyone was corrupt, got their names put on uh, on landmarks in New York. I mean, even though he was really close friend to the, to the notorious uh, Mayor Jimmy Walker, he seemed to be a straight shooter. Very quickly, tell us his story. So he was an architect by training, and during World War I, he was in the American Expeditionary Force, except he never left New York. He served his entire war here building fortifications. Um, though he used Major Deegan for the rest of his life, he never actually left New York. Um, he helped start the American Legion. That's really his claim to fame, I think. And then he was the chair of the Bronx Chamber of Commerce for a while. Uh, Mayor Walker appointed him to be tenement commissioner, and he probably did a pretty good job And that, though one of his major claims to fame as tenement commissioner was he declared war on pigeon coops, <laughs> at which he was convinced spread polio. They don't, but um, they were definitely blocking fire exits, and um, that was pretty much him. He died young. He died of appendicitis. Uh, a lot of these people died young, I noticed. But but one yeah. thing about, about Deegan is, even though he was Mayor Walker's close pal, um, 
you know, once he got that job for the tenant and housing commissioner, he took it seriously. And he went after those landlords who were violating every single law, much to, I, I you know, and it, that didn't help Walker very much because the Seabury Commission that kicked him out, Deegan testified in front of it. So, but they still yeah. remain friends. But th- I thought that that was very, very interesting. I, I, I got to run on because time is short. <laughs> Clifford Holland. Now, here's a man that really deserved the honor of, yes. of the of the of being of having a big structure named after Holland Tunnel. Quickly, tell us his story. He was the chief engineer. Um, he also designed most of the subway tunnels across the East River. They're all still in use. Uh, his engineering apparently was so great that when they hold through, they were digging the Holland Tunnel from New York and from New Jersey. And when they connected, they were off by less than a millimeter. He was wow. apparently a really gifted engineer. Unfortunately, the compression, decompression, and the stress uh, got to him. He also died young. Um, he died at uh, Kellogg's Sanatorium. Yeah, yeah, very because of yeah. that, because of and and I and I learned from from the book that thirteen workers died also in the construction yeah. of the Holland Tunnel. Uh, that was that was heroic, and 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 he came up with a bunch of um, new engineering things to make it possible mm-hmm. that 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 became commonplace after that. Um, really uh, significant guy. Now somebody who is different than all these people that we have talked about so far. That most of the people that you talked about is William Shea. After whom Shea Stadium was named. Now, yes. uh, he was powerful, but 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 he was the kind of powerful person that worked behind the scenes. You know, a wheeler dealer. Those kind of people like to stay behind the curtain. You know, they they seldom become public. But mm-hmm. this guy not only became public; they named this big sports venue after him. They they did it in his lifetime. How did that happen? Well, actually, you know, they people tried to get him to run for office and he always said, no, 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 I want to be behind the scenes. He was the unofficial chairman of the unofficial government of New York, which was basically a group of white men who would get in a room and decide what policy would be. Um, when the Dodgers left New York, um, he, the mayor at the time, appointed Shea to be the head of a committee to get baseball, to get National League Baseball back in New York. And that's really where he became prominent in the public eye. Um, He had, his strategy was threatened to start a new league. And he got Gertrude Whitney's niece, who was obviously fabulously wealthy, related to the Vanderbilt family, to back the Continental League, which was his proposed alternate league. And the threat worked. Um, We got the Mets. And yeah. I live in Queens, so yay for that. Yeah, so that so that that explains it. But you know, Shea Stadium was demolished back in two thousand eight. I believe that was the mm-hmm. date, and it was replaced by City Field. City Field is named after City Group uh, yep. because they paid for naming rights four hundred million dollars. You know that has now become commonplace. Um, so so in the future, will books like yours uh, be impossible or unnecessary? Because we'll all know that the landmark was named after the highest bidder? Yeah, right. It's a real change in the way we think about uh, about naming rights. And I, I think that will continue to be true for commercial entities like stadiums. Um, but roads and bridges, I mean, New York's somewhat unique in naming our roads and bridges after people, as opposed to just saying I-87, which mm-hmm. is the major, you know, uh, um, that's, a, that's a New York thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't see that happening for, I don't think we'll have Citigroup expressway no. at least i hope oh, not that's good i think some cities actually do have that but in any event yeah. i'm glad we you think we won't now no as you as you write in your book and as 
we've seen so far from the people we talked, um, most of the people you write about are white men because most of the landmarks are named after white men, but not all. Um, and you do feature a number of, of women and people of color mm -hmm. that have you know, made a difference in New York uh, and, and had things named after them. The, the one that caught my attention, uh, Shirley Chisholm, uh, the late Congresswoman from Brooklyn. I think our viewers probably know a lot about her. Yeah. But but for for summarize, give us a couple of quick highlights of what she meant to the city and beyond. Biden Shirley Chisholm, right? Not only was she the first black woman to be to serve in Congress, but she shook things up the moment she walked in. They tried to sideline her on the um, Rural Agriculture Committee. And uh, first of all, she fought back against that. But she also took the advice of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was one of her constituents, to you know make lemonade from this appointment. And and that's how we got uh, food stamps and women, um, you know, the WIC program was because Shirley Chisholm was on this committee, and she paired with Bob Dole and said, "Hey, we can really help poor urban kids mm. and make a difference in their lives." And she did that. I mean, she was a true fighter for New York yeah. and for women and for children. Now, the Shirley Chisholm State Park is what's named after her. Probably there'll be more uh, as the future mm -hmm. rolls on. Now, Robert Moses is uh, somebody who lurks in the background in a lot of the yeah. of your vignettes, a lot of your stories, uh, because he was the premier shaper of the of the look of the architecture of the city. Uh, but in the process of doing that, um, he demolished some vibrant uh, communities of color, which makes him more of a villain than a hero in, in most people's eyes. As we've seen, that does, that hasn't stopped people from getting big things named after him. Now, he has a few things named after him uh, around the state, mm -hmm. but no big thing that fits the kind of impact that he had. Why? I think because he didn't die young. Um, if he had died, like he outlived his glory days. And by the time he died, he was already the villain. Um, we And we don't tend to name things for people who are the villain in the moment, or at least perceived as the villain in the moment. Uh, so, you know, one final one final question. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you move beyond beyond New York City. Uh, for example, you, you, t you write about Yonkers. Is Yonkers the only city in the world named after a nickname? <laughs> <laughs> I don't Oh, it might be. But, you know, Adrian Vanderdonk was a fascinating character. Fascinating, fascinating. Unfortunately, we don't have time, too much time to talk about him. Let me just say that he was the first lawyer in what became New York City. And even despite that, they named Yonkers after him. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> As Listen, a lawyer, I take that personally. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, but I did. Uh, Rebecca, <laughs> thank you so much. It's a fun book. It's a great way to know about New York history. Reading this book, I recommend it. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.